0: Hello there, friends, and welcome back to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. This is a really special episode to me. Uh, If you've been with us for a while, you're probably aware that this past June I released a book. It's called The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. And I could not be happier and more grateful with how it has been received. The readers that have gotten a hold of the book, really spans so many different locations and Jewish backgrounds. And um, I've been in touch with a lot of the readers, discussing it and hearing feedback. And again, I couldn't be happier and more grateful uh, with what I'm hearing. So I decided, wanted to bring all of the readers together uh, to discuss a little bit of the story behind the book, how some of the ideas evolved. And uh, that's what this virtual book club really was. So I'm excited to share with you the recording. If you have the book, if you started reading the book, I think you'll enjoy hearing a little bit of the story behind the book. If you haven't yet gotten a hold of the book, I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode because I hope that it will intrigue you and inspire you to go out and buy the book. Why haven't you bought it yet? Um, So give a listen. Tell me what you think. Um, I always appreciate everyone's feedback. Reach out to me on any of the social medias or however else you can get a hold of me. Um, I always love hearing the feedback. And uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. So take a listen. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. Okay, so welcome everybody again. Um, I want to begin by pointing out that we are at a very special time of year because we are not only in the month of Av, but the month of Av, we were just a couple of days ago, it was Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which was obviously a very sad day. We're coming up this Shabbat on Tuba'av, the 15th of Av, and we know that the 15th of Av is actually considered, believe it or not, by the sages, one of the most joyous days in the Hebrew calendar, and we're not going to get into the history of why, but it's considered one of the most joyous days. This Shabbat, it's, I'd be interested to click through, I'm not sure, raise your hand if anyone over here happens to be in upstate New York, or in the mountains, or in a bungalow colony, Levi, I see you over there, I'm trying to click through, so... It was, I remember growing up, like this Shabbat is called Shabbos Nachamu, Shabbos Nachamu, which is the Shabbos of Nechama. Nechama means of consolation, of being comforted. Um, And in in the mountains, right, where all the camps and all the bungalow colonies are, this has become a major weekend for parties, for celebrations, for concerts. It's extremely festive. And it's a bizarre Aspect of the Jewish calendar that we go from the saddest day in the calendar to Shaba'av, and then it's, and then we're suddenly partying. I concerts, the biggest, the biggest singers, right, this is their big Shabbos Nachamu gig, they used to, I don't know if they still do, Libra you'll tell me, but they used to rent out entire races, there was a raceway, I don't remember what what, what it was, right, but there was a raceway, I, when I went to camp, I wasn't in the Catskills, I used to go to camp in Pennsylvania, so I was sort of out of the party. But they used to rent out and all the big name singers, and then this would be, it would be so festive. And what a bizarre aspect of the Jewish calendar that we go from a time of mourning the Holy Temple, a time of sadness, and then suddenly it's like the moment that we have a chance, we're suddenly jumping back into the party. Like, what's that about? you know it's like if you see god forbid somebody's mourning you know a, a loved one if you're mourning you know a, a partner and then like right after the shiva's over right after you finish the morning suddenly they're like okay three days later found somebody new right you know i'm engaged selfie on instagram you'd be like isn't that a little bit like disrespectful and yet how could we go from this this sad day and now suddenly say okay it's over now let's party and this, it, 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 you can almost feel somewhat disturbed by it. Like, were we, were we inauthentic with all the fasting, with all the crying? Was it inauthentic? But there's something that's beautiful that's built into the, the way we view, the way Judaism views, uh, views our role of balancing our emotions. And that is that we always need to have the capacity to feel both sadness and joy, sometimes even simultaneously, and know how to oscillate between the two. And if for whatever reason, the situations in our life require us to turn up the volume On the sadness on the seriousness of something in our life calls upon us and says Okay, now is the time to mourn now is the time to focus on what we're missing. Then the next step has to be okay if we were able to do that if we were able to turn up the sadness, then now we also need the capacity to turn up the joy. Because if you're only. If you only feel sadness, but you you don't feel joy within that same capacity, then that means that you're not really in control of your emotions as you should be, but your emotions control you. And one of the most beautiful moments, one of the most beautiful moments that we have in Jewish tradition is when a bride and groom stand under the chuppah. And if you know, right, they just get married, he puts a ring on her finger, they have sheva brachos, and it's this moment of closeness. Hold on, I'm just going to let some people in. It's this moment of closeness between the Khatan and the kala, between the bride and the groom. And they're sitting there and they're connecting. And hopefully, by most weddings, the crowd is quiet. Sometimes they're a little bit of a noisy crowd. But then someone gets up, the person who's singing usually, and he sings a song called Imeshka Chechir Shalayim. It's this beautiful moment and everyone is somber, depending on what tune you like. Old Kalbach tune. This beautiful moment and we're speaking about mourning Jerusalem. And you can be brought to tears. And then there's a custom to break a glass. Why do we break a glass? We break a glass to remember that we're in mourning, we're missing the Holy Temple, we're missing Jerusalem. So we break the glass. Right, it's a sign of brokenness. It's called in Hebrew and Kabbalah, shvirat hakelem. We focus on the brokenness of the world, shattered vessels. And anyone who's ever been by a wedding knows that the sound of broken vessels—the sound that's meant to commemorate the brokenness of the world, that's meant to commemorate the the temple's destruction—is probably the most festive sound. As a Jew, your ears are in tune, right? Too, and you, you and and you could unmute yourself if you'd like, if you're very quick on the trigger, right? But the minute that you hear that broken glass, what is the very next thing, Sapphire Grace? Tough. You're already dancing, Mazel right? Tos. Mazel Tov, right? Everyone just, sh- just shouts it out, Mazeltov. That moment under the chuppah, when it's supposed to be a moment of crying, a moment of sadness, has been transformed because of the context to a moment, to this moment of celebration, mazel tov! So much so that it's already become Jewish custom that like, you know, when you hear accidentally the waiters in the kitchen, like somebody accidentally knocked over the thing at the plates, and everyone hears this crashing from the back, right, as Jews were like, something's breaking, mazel tov! right? That's like, that's our knee-jerk reaction. It's an amazing thing. Because when you've been in the party this long, and you've almost been annihilated, and you've almost been, uh, been, been wiped off the face of the planet, and you've almost been gassed, and you've stared down the barrel, and you're still here to tell that story, and you're still fired up, then you know, and you know when that glass is broken, when you know that when your world is about to shatter, you know that suddenly the door is opening up, for new potential, something big is about to happen. And I think that there's something beautiful, because again, we know we're familiar with the mazel tov. But something else happens a moment later. And that is that the chatan and the kala, afterwards, they go down from the chuppah. And then they have this walk back down the aisle, right? When they came in, the chassan came in on his own, the kala came in on her own. The bride, the, the, I'm sorry, the groom came in, the bride came in, they came in by themselves. And now they're leaving together. It's one of the only times in Jewish tradition when, when a, a husband and wife are supposed to show, you can whenever you'd like, depending on how comfortable you are showing physical touch in public. But over here specifically, we advise, we want the chatan and the kala, we want the bride and the groom to hold hands together as they walk down, as they walk down. I see someone is saying on the bottom, "Yo Yomazikaron. They're walking down the aisle together because it's not yet done. Where are they walking? Everyone, see, they're walking down the aisle together and everyone's singing. They're singing, they're celebrating. But it's not done yet because now they have one more step to go. They go to a little private room together. It's called the Yichud Room when it's just the two of them together. And any time that there's this brokenness, the reason that there's a Mazel Tov is because we know that there's a new journey that's about to begin. This journey back down the chuppah, Us, God, unified in this most beautiful way. But there's still a destination, and that is the Yichud Room. I believe right now, I believe right now, you know, if you again, if you look back at history, the breaking of the glass, I would like to hope and I'd like to believe, as Jews, as the Jewish people, the breaking of the glass is behind us. We're not yet there, we're not yet in the Yichud room, we're not yet there at that destination, but where are we right now? We're on the aisle, we're in that transition phase. We're in that transition phase between the broken glass behind us and the Yichud room, this private room ahead of us. And now it's really just our job to navigate, to go, to move closer to that destination, hand in hand with one another, hand in hand with God, and try to arrive at that destination. God willing. The month of Aves, we know for those who are reading the book, and again, this is, I don't, I don't know if anyone has gotten to hear, or some of you, the ones who have finished it, you've gotten to hear, but all the way in the back of the book, in the chapter called How to Make Real Change, in chapter 19, there's a little chart, it looks like this. And in this chart, we show how every single month corresponds to one of the elements. And if you take a look, the month of Av corresponds to the element of fire. And the reason why it corresponds to the element of fire, it says the temple was destroyed because of how people mistreated each other connected to fire. The image of the burning flames of destruction are connected to the fire element. But as you know, if you've read the book, every single one of the elements can be channeled towards the negative or can be channeled towards the positive. And the month of Av, which represents this element of fire, the first nine days, we focus on the fire of destruction. But we know that fire is also the fire of inner passion. Right? Fire is the fire of saying we can be greater, we can destroy the obstacles that block us from being our best selves. So right after Tisha B'av is over, right after the glass is shattered, now we enter a new phase, and this Shabbat is going to be Tuba Av. And that's when we channel our inner element of fire towards greatness. Now we start looking towards the month of Elul, towards Rosh Hashanah, towards Yom Kippur. And we say, how do we take all of this fire? And now how can we build it and use it not as a destructive fire, but as a fire of passion, as a fire of leadership, as a fire of deep inner yearning to become our best selves. So that's why we can go from the sadness of Tisha B'Av and suddenly say, okay, now we've had the sadness, now... It's time to celebrate it's a little bit about understanding where we are during this time of year and. uh, Sapphire Gray says my nickname is fire I, I don't you're not up on my screen right now, but just from the little that we know each other, it makes total sense, I could see it, I could see it keep the fire burning. So um. I I hope that we'll get to do this a couple of times, you know, I wanted to put one on the calendar, it's July, it's, you know, hard time in the middle of the summer, lots of people are away, but I guess if we can begin our discussion as you're reading the book, um, some of you just got started with it, maybe some of you haven't even started it yet, and I guess I'll share with you just a little bit of maybe some of the uh, we'll start with the story behind the book and then we'll get into some of the ideas that are a little bit closer to the beginning of the book. And then, like I said, I'd love to hear some of your comments and questions. I knew for a very long time, it was, it was always a, a goal of mine, a passion of mine, a desire of mine to, to write a book. Um, for those of you who don't know me as well, there are some that I'm just meeting for the first time we run a uh, Jewish engagement organization, a Jewish adult education, family engagement, family education organization in the DC area, and it's called LEV, which means heart. It's actually called the LEV experience. Because our goal, and when I say ours, I mean together with my wife, Devorah, our goal is we, we, we want to transform the way people perceive observant Judaism. People see it as something that's passionate, that's LEV, that's emotional, You know, I'm guessing that everyone probably on this call you're not you haven't been under a rock, you know that uh, over the course of the last couple of years, media has decided to really, really make a mockery. Of Torah observant uh, Judaism to really just try to poke as many holes and make it look awful. Um, I don't know if anyone is watching the series now the uh, my unorthodox life, uh, which is really just you know just taking just taking swipes one after the other about um what it means to live uh, an orthodox life and uh and there really isn't there really isn't any media out there that shows or at least nothing within the mainstream that shows the passion that orthodox could be Uh, the deep deep meaning that one could experience the the deep fulfillment and the deep joy of living a torah observant life I prefer to say Torah observant and orthodox, because one could feel this passion, you don't need to be, you don't have to, to, to apply this label of orthodox, but just someone who's living a fiery Jewish life in, in whatever label you'd like to call it. And very much the goal of the Lev experience was to provide that, to provide programming and classes and, and whatever we can to really give people a sense, a feel, of something that's beautiful something that is emotional so many years ago when i first started out let's see we've been doing this for 11 12 years but i remember i was living in israel before that and i remember um the first time that i was asked to teach a class this was before there was ever any idea you know to write a book and I think what I was trying to say before, though, is that for the, the, the reason that I was so 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 I was so passionate, I wanted to write a book so much was because I wanted to give that over, not only in just like a once a week class, but I, I wanted to, to be able to give this, to hand this, put this in someone's hand, this book in someone's hand and say, if I could just give you a piece of my experience, if I could just give you a piece of my world in a book, how would that look? And really, when I sat down to write the book, for me, the, the concept of knowing that we all exist on this world with a specific unique mission was always something near and dear to my heart. Which is why I was saying that my, the very first class that I taught, which was, let's say, I don't know, must have been 13, 14 years ago. The very first class, I was in Israel and I was getting my smicha, my rabbinic ordination at Esha Torah. I had learned in, in, in a very large yeshiva called the Mir, I learned in another yeshiva called Torah's Moshe, but I had joined Asha Torah to try to teach and to try to get involved in the work that they were doing. And I was getting my rabbinic ordination over there. And I was just studying there. I wasn't teaching yet in any capacity. And there was a program there called Essentials. Has anyone here heard of this program, Asha Essentials? Asha Essentials is this program where it's it's kind of a drop in program anyone students from the school go there but they have like these rotating teachers and there is a there's a g- incredible teacher over there close close friend of mine who is just this a brilliant teacher hilarious funny deep by the name of revgav friedman Have you heard of revgav friedman i'm clicking through revgav some of you have been to israel with me you've seen revgav uh wonderful wonderful teacher so Rav Gav used to teach in essentials every single day. I think he had like a two o'clock spot. And um, he, um, he, he, was, he was gone. You know, one day he wasn't there. So the fellow who was running essentials, he came in and he asked me, he said, well, would you, would you like to teach Rav Gav's class? To which I said okay you know it's a nice opportunity to, to start teaching and and this subject, the subject of living with your life's mission was something that I was so so passionate about and I prepared a whole class on it and. And uh, just as a, as, as a side kind of a funny story, so this was my first class and I was so excited I was so nervous and I was so excited. <laughs> and I came in to teach and people started coming in and you know they saw me up there but they, they I mean they were expecting of God they didn't really know why I was there. So standing up there and then as the class was ready to start I said good afternoon everybody you know my name is Shlomo Bucksbaum and uh, I'm filling in today for Gav and literally half the room <laughs> just like got up and walked right out I was like wow like hello world you know that was that was a great start and then and then I wanted to be very clever cuz you know Gav's a really funny guy So if I could show them that I'm a funny guy early on, then I'll be able to get all of them to stay. So what I did was I took um, there was a a whiteboard over there. So I took a a marker and what I did is I just made just just like capture their attention. I made a big smiley face on, on the board, a circle and two dots and a big smiley face with little curly pace on the side of Yamaga. And I said, right there, and, and, and I said something like, today we're going to have so, we're gonna have a great time together. It's such a fun class." And then I turned around to start the class and to put something up on the board, and then I realized that I had used a permanent marker on the whiteboard. So that was my initiation to the world of teaching i had half the class leave and then i had a permanent marker on the whiteboard and i'm sitting there like, like hey, how do we get this up it was it was a wonderful embarrassing moment but you know we've come a long way since then but and i and i i hope that as a teacher i've gotten a little bit better but the topic that i chose to teach that not that day the topic of finding your mission was something that for me for me was something that I was always passionate about and always wanted to write about and teach about it. And when I sat down to write the book, I had tried a couple of times to write a book on on finding your life's mission. And I struggled terribly being able to formulate the ideas in a way that I felt wasn't getting back into the cliche. I didn't want it just to sound like a whole bunch of bumper stickers. I didn't want to regurgitate anything that one would hear from any of the popular thought leaders. I wanted to know that I'm adding something that is that is is, is fresh and is authentic and is me and is real. And because of that, after many, many times, I actually decided to steer away completely from the topic because I felt that I couldn't, I I felt like I wasn't adding anything to the fact that there is so much on the topic of finding your mission. And I tried to write other things. And for some reason, no matter what I wrote, I always felt that I I just was, I kept on getting back to this. I said, how could I put a piece of myself out into the world this way and it not be about accomplishing your mission when this is really something that um, that means so much to me, something that I really want to share in the world. Because if there's one thing, if there's one message that I could post on every single billboard, you know, on the planet, if I could go, go up to every single human being and shake them and say, ah, you know, this is my message, this is my thing, it's you're here, you have a specific mission, own it, lean into it, drink it up. So no matter what I wrote, it just, everything ended up going back there. And I really took that as a sign from Hashem that, that, you know, that was the topic. That was what what I was meant to write about. So originally, even going back to that very first class, 12, 13, 14 years ago, whatever it is. I've always looked at this idea of finding one's mission, because again, most of what we hear from the popular thought leaders and everything else is, you know, it's become very cliche to say like, be yourself you know follow your passions do what you're good at there's so much because it's exciting it's exciting for people to hear because really we do every single person we do have our strengths we do have our passions we do have our own you know unique things that we can find and, and that we could love about ourselves but yet i felt that what was This packaging this messaging that has become so cliche that's become bumper sticker that's become so social media again and again of like you know you be you do what you're good at follow your passions. There was something to me that just felt like there was something missing about that, because when I would get up and, and 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 tell you know a bunch of teens or a bunch of young adults. Or even a bunch of adults who are, you know, at any stage of life, because this is something that everyone is searching who's not searching for their meaning is the person who is already retired and has their career behind them are they not also searching for their meaning, whatever the group was there's always people that get excited about it because it sounds exciting. It sounds sexy. It sounds, it sounds you know, it's, 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 it makes a good pep talk. You, you know, you, sa- you get a big round of applause, but yet when it comes to applying that practically, there is something terribly missing because the vast majority of people cannot say that if they took their strengths and they took their passions, suddenly they can transform their life. There seems to be a hole in that logic. And yet I was much more drawn to an idea that you find more in the Jewish mystical texts, especially one that's emphasized very much in the world of Hasidut, and that takes it the other way. And that focuses more on actually, if you want to look at your life mission, then actually take a look at the areas that you're struggling. And that could be aspects of your personality that you want to overcome. That can be something spiritual, spiritual pitfalls that you constantly find yourself falling into your own addictions, your own sadness, your own darkness. Or your own pain. That's your mission. And I want to read to you over here. This is the Sefer. It's called Sitkas HaTzadik written by Rav Tzadik and I quote this in the book, but I want to read you to this language. If I can read it to you in Hebrew and I'll translate it phrase by phrase. Kishlo kishlon ha'adam, in a time that a person is going through a stumbling block, going through a difficult time, yada, he should know, she should know, she ace. That at that moment, at that time, when you're in that darkness, when you're in that dark, terrible place, you're like, how in the world did I get here? What am I doing here? How did I get here again? I thought I overcame this place. I thought that I was past here. I thought that I was spiritually greater. I thought that I was more mature. What am I doing back in this place? chana la oso davar That is actually a preparation in their life for something great, for something that's amazing. The And if a person merits, but oso shaa, in that moment, that means in that moment of failure, in that moment of darkness, in that moment of pain, a la gedola A person at that moment. Not like next week when they bounce back at that very moment when they're in that dark, difficult place, you call lot. They're able to elevate themselves. To this very, very high spiritual level. Listen to this. According to how great you think that this hate, this, this downfall, this, this, um, this sin, this transgression. As much as you think it's great, that's the level of greatness, of spiritual greatness that a person can attain. Shaiyetzaharam asido the this this area that the yeetzaharam the evil inclination pulls a person kahu godel hatova that is the greatness of the good sheyuchal liklot az that a person can capture at that moment. Many of you might be familiar with the great Hasidic master Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. And he comments on a line in, in, in Tanakh, I don't remember offhand where it is, but there's a line and it could be that it's in Psalms, it's in Tehillim, but I don't remember. But he comments on this uh, on this uh, verse that says, im etzak shamayim, sham ata. If I were im shamayim, if I would climb to the heavens, that a person wants to get spiritually high. So if I climb up to heaven, im etzak if I climb up to heaven, sham ata, you God, you'd be there in heaven. Listen to these next words. Listen to these next words and, and, and promise me that if you ever feel that you're not worthy, if you ever feel that you are stuck, you'll remind yourselves of these words. The im atziya And if I'm down in the dumps, if I'm down in the depths of hell, if I'm in the darkest places in my life, hineka. There you are. There you are. When I'm feeling high, shamata. There you are, and if I'm down in the depths of hell, I'll find you right there close to me. The powerful line that we say every single morning in Ashrei, one of the Psalms that we say every single day as part of our prayer. And I'm telling you, I said this for over 30 years of my life before it finally hit me once when I myself found myself in a, in a dark place. And then suddenly just one morning it hit me. So Hashem hanoflim. God is close. To, people, to those who are falling, to those who have fallen. Those who have fallen who are ready to reach back up and say, I want to climb out of this. I want to be greater. I want to be close to you, God, but I cannot do it alone. I need you. So Hashem Hashem is close to those people. So one of my goals in trying to share this and trying to, to teach this idea was that a person's mission in this world isn't just about capitalizing on their strengths, what are you good at, what are you passionate about, but to say that, no, there's actually different quadrants. On the one hand, we want to look at the positives, and if we can break the positives down, if, I could, if, if we could, again, create really different four different quadrants, and we'll, let's say two on this side are the positive and two on this side are negative. So if we would say on the positive side, yes, what are you good at what are your strengths and we have a whole chapter about that in the book it's chapter. The one that's about that it's chapter. Discovering your superpowers chapter 17 is all about that look at your strengths look at your passions, look at the needs of your life and and how you can fulfill those needs, how can you make your impact. Second quadrant, also on the positive. What are the things that you're good at? What are the, what, what? I'm sorry. What are the things that you're spiritually good at? What are the mitzvot that you're excited about? What aspects of? What is your mitzvah? What is your mitzvah? What are the? What? What? What are the mitzvot that you do that when you do it it lights you up? Do you love Shabbat? Do you love lighting Shabbat candles? Do you love wrapping tefillin in the morning? Do you love studying Torah? Do you love speaking to God? Do you love teaching others? Do you love baking challah? That's the second aspect on the positive side, the second quadrant. So again, it's what are you good at? What are your passions? What spiritually excites you? But then now we have to move to the other quadrants. We have to look at the stuff in your life that you might say you might perceive them as being negative. And that itself falls into two different categories. The first category are the things that you really struggle with. I know that I have a terrible temper. I need to get over that. I'm not saying me. Maybe, maybe it is me. But I'm just, I'm just speaking generally. Maybe uh, I get angry too. Maybe I yell too much at my kids. Maybe I waste too much time. Maybe I'm too lazy. Maybe I have an addiction. Maybe I'm in denial that I have an addiction. All those things that we know that we have to fight, that we have to overcome. And then there's. A fourth quadrant, which is also on the on the side that we may perceive as negative. And that is, what are the challenges in my life that God has put there that really there isn't very much that I can do. I cannot change the situation. All I can change is my mindset. All I can change is my perspective. There's a whole chapter in the book called the power of hope. And there are things in life, there are painful people people that cause us pain, not painful people, people that cause cause us pain in our life. And we have to learn to deal with them, but we can't change them. That's not part of our mission. We suffer a loss in our life. What can you do about that? It's really just about your mindset. It's just about how you're going to approach it and other things. And over there, the goal is just to learn how to have Muna, to have faith, to believe, to have hope. And that's also part of one's mission. You can't change that, but how you navigate through that, will you excel, will you grow from that situation? That's also going to be part of your mission. Every single person has to go through a certain amount of pain in their life and how they navigate through that, that's also part of their mission. So again, four areas of accomplishing one's mission. It's yes, strengths, passions, making that impact when you can. Number two, finding those things that spiritually excite you number three overcoming those challenges and those tests and number four learning how to navigate through those things that are painful that are that we cannot change it but all we can do is change our mindset and really throughout the book those are the things that i that i I try to emphasize in the context of the four elements but there was something else there was something else also within the context of accomplishing one's mission that also i i, I wanted to sort of change the the narrative on because again people ask this question of of you know what's my mission? And they think that it's somewhere else. It's that, it's over there. It's it's maybe the next job is gonna be my mission or 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 maybe my job is my mission or maybe my hobby is my mission or maybe this is my mission or maybe that, maybe it's the book that I haven't written or people are, you know, maybe it's giving away my kidney. Maybe it's giving away both of my kidneys. You know, I don't know, That's not, that I don't know, like that became like a trend. And again, I encourage everyone, I'm not trying to discourage giving away your kidney, but that became, and everyone's looking, everyone, many people are looking elsewhere for like, what is my I must not be doing it? Where is it? What is it? And the purpose of writing this book was also to change that narrative. If you want to know your mission, it's right here. If you want to know what your mission is right now? Look at what happened in the last 24 hours and look at what will be in the next 24 hours. Because I promise you it's right there. That might not be your mission next week. That might not be your mission next year. But every single day that you exist, your mission is right there in front of you. You don't have to look anywhere else. And the truth is that there's something so tricky about it. And again, if you look at YouTube, the idea of accomplishing your mission, there's so many TED talks and this talks and that. There's so much on it. And so much of it. Focuses a person's attention away from the life that they're living right now, you know, ask these questions, what would you do if you had a bazillion dollars and what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail and these are all wonderful questions when it comes to setting goals to thinking ahead they're brilliant questions that every person should ask it. But God forbid to think that you have to ask a question to accomplish your mission. What would I do if I if if I couldn't fail? What could I do if I had a million? These are not questions that you ask to accomplish your mission. Questions that you ask to accomplish your mission is what's the very next thing happening in my life that is of significance? Who who are the people in my life right now tomorrow? Who are the people that need me the most tomorrow? Who do I need to show up as tomorrow? What's gonna to be my biggest challenge tomorrow? So don't ask the question, what's my life mission? Ask what is, my, what is the next step that I have to take to get to that mission? So those are the things really that my goal coming into writing this book was to try to focus on. Number one, embracing both the positive and the negative. And number two, trying to show that our entire life, everything Everything in our world is part of our mission. It's all part of that one big picture. And as I was going through the process, as I started to write, the concept of the Arba Yisodos, the four elements, kept on going through my head again and again. It really started out as one chapter, It was one chapter on the four elements going into your inner world and then from one chapter it turned into four chapters and then I'm like no this I need at least two chapters on each one of the elements and then it ended up being eight chapters and then eventually it started creeping in outside of those eight chapters every chapter in the book started referencing those four elements and after the first draft was submitted to the publisher the publisher said you know this book it's about finding your mission, but it's also about the four elements, and I said well that, my goal wasn't really to write a book on the four elements, it was to write a book about finding your mission. And He said well actually you know here it is it's a book about both because what you've really done is you've merged those two things you've really shown that the four elements really is the structure behind if one really understands how to unlock those four. Elements that are inside. If you understand how to explore those inner worlds of the four elements, then inevitably you will accomplish your mission in life. And we spoke about that a little bit and we developed that idea a little bit more. And before we knew it, I rewrote the entire book beginning to end, you know, in that sense, COVID actually did help a lot because all my summer plans last summer were canceled. I ended up in Colorado all day, you know, me, my computer and a couple of little mountains a couple of little kids, but, you know, we put them in my in-laws backyard and then, you know, we sat down there, me in Colorado and my computer and I rewrote the entire book. And this time framing everything within the context of the four elements, and that was a little bit of the evolution behind uh, how the book came about. Um, I want to uh, share what one more point again, just about. A little bit of the story behind the book and the format of the book and then again i'll open it up to some questions I see that some things in the chat I see there's some great comments coming in, but if anyone wants to ask a question. Let me know in the chat that you want to ask something and you, you can unmute yourself, or you can just put your question down there. It, it was very important for me to write the book when, when I wrote the book. That it had a very strong grounding in the Torah. And that these weren't just ideas that were, you know, being pulled from all over the place, but that that it uncovered a system. You saw the system and you saw how it how it unfolded in the Torah. And I'm not sure if everyone is familiar, but within the schools of Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, there is an idea that when we learn the Torah, the Torah is studied on four different levels. And there's an acronym called Pardes. In English, you would spell that P-A-R-D-E-S. In Hebrew, you would spell that Pe Resh Dalid Samech Pardes. Pardes means an orchard. Pardes is actually the origin of the word paradise. The paradise was meant to reflect the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden, which is paradise. The root of all of our souls comes from this paradise, from this paradise, from this orchard called Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. And um, the word paradise, again, it, it means orchard, but it's also an acronym for four ways to approach Torah study. The pay, maybe I can even put this in the chat if this would be helpful for people. The p or the pay stands for pshat. There it is. It's there in the uh, in the chat. And pshat means a simple understanding. Simple understanding. Then the resh or the r in pardes stands for remes, which means hints. The dalid stands for drush, which means exposition which, which is a little bit beyond hints. I think that's the right word. And then the Samach stands for sod, secrets. Again, I'm putting this all right here in the chat. So when a person is approaching the Torah, and they're using this, this concept of pardes, what they're doing is they're unlocking the Torah on four levels. Pshat means a simple understanding. And on the level of simple understanding, when we're learning the stories of Adam and Eve, when we're learning the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah and Joseph and Judah, we're learning all those stories. We try to piece it together as stories that happen to people and individuals. And this is their stories and go learn the lessons of those stories. But the Torah is also understood on the level of Remez. And Remez means that every single story... Can be read on multiple levels. I always like to make this joke that when I was a kid, it must have been based off of a. I believe it was based off of a cartoon because I have I have you know in my mind even the the imagery of this cartoon. But there was a song, right? I'm gonna click through just to see if anyone recognized the song. It went, puff the magic dragon na 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 na. All right, puff the magic dragon. Now as a kid. I thought that it was about a uh, live by the sea (laughs) Thought live by the sea you can write down the lyrics if you know it now I always thought puff the magic dragon I believe there was even a character puff the magic dragon right which means like a magical dragon named puff because he would you know puff little smoke rings out of his nostrils as an adult I found out that there is a second meaning because back in, the, in, in that time and place, when you wanted to have a good time, you would puff the magic dragon. Who knew? It's one of those moments, right? When you look back at your childhood and you're like, oh, so that's the subliminal messages I was getting as a child. would puff the magic dragon. Very same words can mean two totally different things. And the brilliance of the Torah is that there's another story that's always being told, the story of Remez, the story of hints, And that story unfolds beyond the level of Remez, but into the level of Drash. And in the level of Drash, there's suddenly ways to identify the fact that there's actually more words to the story. They're just not written on the page. They're written in different ways. They're written in the language of letters. In the language of numbers, in the language of two words that might be written in two totally different places that seem to not fit in properly, but are calling your attention to connect two completely different things in the Torah and say, one second, how are these two things connected? Why did they both use that, that same terminology? There's structures that teach you how to extrapolate new ideas. And there's a whole story. There's a whole story beyond the story. And then finally, Sod. On the level of so, that's where we discover that actually the story isn't even a story about this world at all. It's a story about a spiritual dimension. It's a story about a higher realm. It's teaching us about secrets that no eye can ever see, at least not these two, right? No eye can ever see your ears, your senses, but you need to go deep into, into much deeper levels to experience that world of so, that world of secret and the more that you study the more the levels of remez and of drash and of so the more they unfold and the more that you start to see that the torah can be understood on so many levels to the point that i always say you know if let's say any of you and right, if you were called in if let's say it was bring your child to work day okay and here you had to give this major Major presentation, right? You're an intellectual, you're really smart, and you had to give, you were speaking to NASA or, you know, NISTI or NIFTY or, the, you know, all these different, you know, agencies where all these smart people are. You had to give this presentation, but it was also bring your kid to work day. So you had the most brilliant people there in your audience, and you also had five year old kids. What would you do? How can you give a message? that is compelling to both the brilliant scientist and the four or five year old kid. And The answer is puff the magic dragon. What do you do? You tell them a story. And those who are brilliant will understand the depth behind the story. And for the kids, they heard a good story. And when God wanted to teach us the deepest truths, God knew that my 4-year-old child, my 5-year-old child is going to sit there in, you know, first second grade learning the very very same things that the greatest mystic that ever lived. They learn those very same verses, but they see very different things. Because my child is learning pshat and the mystic is learning remez drash and sod. And there's no end to that. And really what my goal for this book was to tell the story of our life mission, not only using us, but using Adam and Eve, using Cain, the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Noah and the flood, the story of, of, um, of the Tower of Babel, the story of Sodom, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Yaakov, Rachel, Leah, Yosef and Yehuda, and to start looking at them, not to no longer, well, to continue looking at them at the level of Pshat, but also to start seeing the Remes, to start see, seeing the Drash, to start seeing the so to realize that their story is our story. And because of that, as you go through the book, you see what I did, I did my best to try to oscillate between those two things, to, to talk about our patriarchs and our matriarchs, and then to apply those lessons to us to show that this very same structure of the four elements, our earth element, our water element, our wind element, and our fire element, those were those struggles. That is actually the, the story in the book of Horatius. That's the cre- entire creation of the world was an unfolding of that process. Adam and Eve were struggling with that in the Garden of Eden. The, fir- the four generations that sinned, those were their struggles, and the patriarchs and the matriarchs came to put those pieces back together. Up until that final moment when Jacob is, when Yaakov, when Yisrael, when he's lying on his deathbed and he's looking around at his children, and what does he do? He looks at each one and he says, This is your mission because we just spent an entire book trying to to discover our unique mission. And that's Jacob's final message and the final message in the book of Horatius. So that was my goal to weave those two, the story of our mission together with the story of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. And um, there was so much more that I wanted to, to say tonight, but I guess let this just be the beginning of what will hopefully be a longer conversation. I love, love all of your feedback and uh people have been email, emailing me it lights up my day so uh if you're enjoying the book or if you read something in the book and it inspires you please let me know about it let me know where you're up to in the book let me know if you're enjoying it let me know if you'd like to have more of these discussions because you know i i i i have so much that i want to see born out of this book and, um, and again, it's not just about writing a book and saying goodbye to it, but it's about building a community around it. So um, I want to open this up for questions. I'm actually going to stop the recording right now because I want people to feel comfortable asking. I'm going to stop. The- Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to Rabbi Shlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.